Amen. Thank you, team. It was wonderful. I love that song. Sometimes life can get pretty dark and news can be bleak and we wonder whether God's in control and yet that's a cry of the heart, that. Be my vision. And, and already today, what I want to share this morning has been echoed in, in uh, the songs that we've sung and Dan's story about being seen and identity. Uh, I love the way that God uh, knits things together. Uh, and I would say most weeks it's my experience where, um, where the songs and, and, and the testimony just seems to fit with what, what uh, I believe the Lord has placed on my heart to share this morning. So, uh, so it'll be, be good. Guys, can I just have the lights just dimmed a little bit? And I'm going to pull this... T- oh, I don't know if I can. That's okay. We'll, we'll figure that out. Sarah's, uh, didn't Sarah's do so well? No, love, it's, it's fine. I know. For those who don't know, Sarah came up to me this morning. She went, I can play an octave. For those of you who don't understand what that means, I don't know what that means, but what I do know what she means is that her hand was working enough to be able to do that. So uh, it's great to see you at the yeah, love. That's awesome. Let me, uh, let me start off by showing you a quote. We're going to jump into some things this morning that uh, I hope will prove helpful, inspiring, encouraging. Um, but at the same time, we are very much looking at Jesus. And, and so we're going to be uh, looking at John chapter 1. You can turn there now. We're going to get there in just a few minutes. And we're also going to be focusing on Jesus uh, in, 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 in throughout, the, even though we're going to be looking at a particular particular character. I want to start by showing you a quote um, from Rob Reimer, who wrote the book Soul Care. It's an excellent, excellent book. I highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, he says this, what you believe about yourself is, your, is the foundation of your life. It is your identity. And a faulty foundation will create cracks in the soul. If you are going to construct a healthy life, it begins with what you believe about yourself. What you believe about yourself shapes your life. That's essentially what Rob Reimer is saying here is, is, is the, the value you place on your life, how you see you and life really shapes your destiny. It shapes the decisions you make because of how you see each other. I'm just going to stop just for a second. I'm sorry, guys. This, the lights are still really bright. And, and if it's just it's these lights. Not those lights. Sorry, everybody. Because I just know by 10 minutes, I'm not going to be able to see a thing. <laughs> there you go. That's better. Thank you. Sorry. I, you guys do a great job. There you are. I can see everybody now. It's good. So the way that we see ourselves determines how we live our lives. Now, that might be a strange statement for some of you. but So I'm going to spend some time. We're going to be looking at things like self-worth identity, how Jesus sees us, how we see us. But that statement, I believe, that Rob is making here is that this, this idea you need to have a strong foundation of who you are. And you see, our culture, our society, even people who don't believe in Jesus would absolutely agree that the value that you place on your existence is incredibly important. So the psychiatrist Christina Hibbert said this, it is a deep knowing that I am of value, that I am lovable, necessary to this life, and of incomprehensible worth. It is so important that we have a clear view of who we are. However... There's a but. 
As with all good things, you take them to an extreme, they become a negative thing. So if you are so in love with yourself, so focused on who you are, so uh, full of yourself, it tips over into something that is actually unhealthy. So on one side, having a clear view of who you are, of self-value, of self-worth, is actually medically important. People who do not have that clear identity and understanding that they are of value, it tips very quickly into anxiety and depression and, and all sorts of other things that result in life being impinged. We swing the pendulum the other way, then it's equally damaging because then you get narcissism, self-centeredness. I'm just going to use you, climb over you to get to where I want to be because I am the most important. And so there's this tension. We've been created to, with incredible worth, and yet we need Jesus. There's a, there's a tension. I, I, uh, I, was on the, I was doing the school run the other day with Jack. We were, uh, for, for some wonderful reason, Jack has got into, uh, he enjoys listening to 80s and 90s music because he thinks that he, he really likes it, even though I, I think that, you know, he probably thinks it's quite ancient. You know, he'll, he'll sometimes put his thumb over the little reading on the, on the screen that tells you what year it came out, and he challenges me, what year was this? And I'm usually pretty good, sadly. Within one or two years, I'm, I'm usually named, especially the 80s. And so we were talking about music and how music in the 80s worked. And, and so for some of you in the room, you're going to go, you're so old. I'm going to, you know, and then others of you are like, I'm with you, Glenn. Because I remember when the charts equal the actual amount of singles bought on, on the little singles. And you'd line up and you'd wait or you'd get your cassette. And though, so the artists, if they were selling a number of singles, then they would rise up in the charts. They didn't have Spotify and everything else. And now I'm reinforcing that view, Glenn, you are so old by some in the room. I understand that. So then we got talking about cassettes. Cassettes. These things. I found one. These things, these, you know, like on a Sunday afternoon at like five o'clock in the afternoon, I don't know what it's like in North America, but in Britain, every young person had a blank tape and a cassette player because then you start recording the top 40 and you have to time the press, the record and play at the right time. As long as you had the tabs in, right? You remember this? Could some of the people who remember the 80s help me out here? Thank you. So then these, if these tabs were popped out, you used to chew bits of tissue And stick them in. Anyone else? Thank you. Thanks, Pete. You're with me. And if your cassette player was old, it would chew up the tape. So then you'd pull this thing out and it'd go... And you'd be like, oh no, this is the top 40. I've spent ages doing this. So you'd have to cut it. Then it got really fun. Because then you'd lay it on the table... And you'd have a little bit of tape, tape we call it in Britain, and you'd cut it, and then you'd stick it back together, put a little bit of tape on it. Is, is, is still people with me? Did you used to do this? Yes. And then you'd start the process of trying to get this, like, and, and, then, and then the final, at the end, right? And then you used to have Walkman. And um, Walkman that were like the size of a brick that you'd go running with. You put these things in, right? You remember? But the batteries used to run out so quick, so you needed one of these that were the perfect size. Because then you could put it in and you could spin and not need to use the rewind and fast forward in your cassette tape because you could do it this way. As long as you got it the right way. Because if you do it the other way, 
you're in all sorts of trouble. The tension of these things are really, really important. If the tension is wrong, then you get in it, or it slows down, and it's all sorts of mess. But it was entertainment as well as music. It was wonderful. And I still kind of miss these things. Not really, but good memories. If you get the tension wrong on this, then it leads to disaster. You've got to have this tension that is right in order for the music to play cleanly. You've got to have this tension between self-worth and humility just right so that your life music will play perfectly. Otherwise, it starts to warble and it gets messy and it gets nasty and you don't want to listen to it. You don't want to be around it. You certainly don't want to be friends with it. So the tension between self-worth and humility is deeply, deeply important. And it starts with the question overall is where do you actually find your self-worth? Now we're getting to John 1, but stay with me. This is an important foundation. Where do you find your self-worth? Where do you find your identity? Where do you find that value that you need in your life? There's really only two places. The first place is what other people think about you. Maybe you came up in a family that had certain expectations of who you had to be, the type of job that you had to have, the degree or your qualifications or your grades in order to be a good person. So this is the type of person. You get your self-worth from that. Or you can find self-worth within yourself. And this is big in our culture. You don't need anybody else to tell you that you're a good person. You are a good person. It's self-empowerment. It's, it's who you are, what you can do, what you can achieve. The challenge with that is, is then we start looking at other things within ourselves that often fail us. So some of the things that psychiatrists would tell us that we look to to find a, a decent self-value is our appearance. So if we look a certain way, we feel good about ourselves, and that results in disaster, because I've said this many, many times, gravity always wins. You are ultimately going to get to the place where your appearance lets you down. Always. The other place that we find our self-worth from in our culture, and it's encouraged, which by the way, appearance is a massive one in our society, and it drives our social media, it drives the message that we're giving out. So on one hand we're going, it's not about what you look like, it's not about your weight, it's not about your looks, while at the same time completely negating that by the imagery that we're using in order to to market and, and show this is what you need to be in order to be a good person. It's a bizarre world we live in isn't it the tension is wrong it's off yeah you should feel comfortable in yourself as long as you look like this you know so the other place that we find it psychiatrists would tell us is our net worth how much money we have our possessions our stuff uh, who we know what we do well it's nice to be able to say you know well what do you do for a living well i'm an adhd coach Ooh, don't know what that is but it sounds really cool Sounds a bit chaotic, knowing some people with ADHD. But, you know, and, and Dan wasn't like this at all, but we sometimes use our job titles to try and bring ourselves self-worth. It's dangerous because these things can get taken away. Our appearance goes. Gravity always wins. Our net worth can disappear. What we do can go. Uh, who we know can certainly disappear. If we find our net worth in a relationship that we have with somebody, that can change and suddenly you feel awful about yourself. These are the things. So on one hand, our culture will say you need to find your self-worth and identity in yourself, but it's dangerous finding it in yourself. The really dangerous one is what you achieve, your performance. 
So not only is it what people say about us, but what we do and what we achieve, that we have this idea. And, and I have to be careful with this one. I really have to be careful with this one because it's go, 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 go. It's performance. So I feel good about myself if I'm achieving something. And as a pastor, that is the worst lie to listen to. Because the job's never done. (laughs) There's always somebody else who needs to hear about Jesus. And so there is no end game. There, there, There is no achievement. And the bizarre thing is, is the Bible doesn't tell us that that we should be finding our self-worth from any of these things. The danger is, in all these self-focused, self-worth ideas, is that every one of them can let us down. And then what? And then what? This quote. Consciously or unconsciously, all of us have experienced this feeling that we must meet certain arbitrary standards to attain self-worth. Failure to do so threatens our security and our significance. Such a threat, real or perceived, results in a fear of failure. And at that point, we are accepting the false belief that I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. When we believe this about ourselves, Satan's distortion of truth is often reflected in our attitudes and our behavior. Self-worth is important, but if we believe the lie that it's based on what we do and certain standards, then ultimately we're going to fail. So there's a tension. Self-worth and tipping over into something that's unhealthy. But the reality is, and this is what I want to communicate, this is what I'm going to see in this scripture, is that every one of us were created to feel empowered, to be culture-changing. Every one of us. Every one of us should have a boldness and a courage and be influential and, and feel confident and feel good about ourselves. We were created to be that way. And even though Christianity has a reputation of beating down on people sometimes, that no, you have no self-worth, you are nothing, Jesus is everything, the reality is, as you're going to see, the more we see Jesus as being everything, then the reality is, yes, we do see ourselves as nothing, but it causes this self-worth to increase. It's, it's, it's a weird balance. And I want to show you that this morning, that the less we, think of our, uh, uh, less we think about ourselves, the more we think about Jesus, our self-worth goes up. And that's not an equation that the world thinks about. The world says you need to think highly of yourself and then your influence and boldness and confidence will increase. It doesn't work that way because if we think highly of ourselves, then we let ourselves down. So we either have what other people think, we have what we think about ourselves, but there's actually a better way. So parents, friends, mentors, people who you have, any of you who are mentoring or coaching or influential in somebody's life, it's so important as a Christian that this sort of stuff is not instructed, but it needs to be inspired. We need to live our lives in such a way where we have a high sense of self-worth, but it's rooted in a foundation that is godly and good. And that inspires other people and brings boldness and courage out of them. You can't instruct this. It emerges. And so I know that when we get into this scripture in just a second, everything I say is not a to-do list. This, this self-worth emerges out of our focus. It emerges out of seeing Jesus as everything. And so I want to be a pastor of a church of people who see themselves highly but in the right lens. Otherwise, we tip over. Because it's just equally as proud to say, no, I, I, I'm nothing. 
That, that could be as proud as saying I'm everything. It's, this, it's a very strange tension. So let's see what the Bible says. Let's, let's get into this John chapter 1. And uh, I want to show you by looking at a certain character in John chapter 1 who had incredibly high self-worth while thinking of himself as nothing. Let's get into it. John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Who's this John? It's not John the book uh, writing John that we're, we're studying, John chapter 1. It's a different John. This is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was an uneducated but very popular preacher. He was from the bad part of town, and yet he was outside of the city preaching about the Messiah. And the leaders of the time were very uncomfortable with this because they wanted to make sure they kept control of people's views when it came to the Messiah. The Messiah to the Jewish people at this time was somebody who was going to come in and overturn the Roman rule. He was going to be a political warrior. And John is out in the wilderness preaching about the Messiah in a way that is uncomfortable to the leadership. So they wanted to know more because John was stirring, influencing. He was bold. He was confident confident in who he was. He had a high view of self-worth, of what his identity was, who he was, what his calling was, and he was changing culture. And so the leaders sent, and in verse 19, we see this. This is what happened with the leaders. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What's your identity, John? Who is it? Who are you? Because clearly you're somebody important. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? Because the Old Testament talks about how an Elijah would come before the Messiah. Are you that guy? No. Are you the prophet that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy? No. I'm none of those things. And yet, he had no identity in the view of the world, the culture. He had no importance. And yet, he was bold, confident, influential, risk-taking, radical. All those things that we want our children to be, our culture to be. Go for it. Do it. While at the same time, confessing that he was nobody. That is... Completely different from what our culture would say. I hope, you, I hope you're with me in that. Our culture says in order to be somebody, in order to be influential, you need to be somebody. John's saying, okay, yeah, I'm influential, but I'm nobody. I'm nobody. And yet Jesus talks about John as well. So while John is saying, I, I'm nobody, this is what Jesus said. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's talking about John. A prophet? Yes. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. There's a disjoint here. He is the Elijah who was to come. So John, on one hand, is saying, I'm nothing. And Jesus, on the other hand, is saying, well, actually, there's nobody being greater. So there's a bit of a disjoint. Look at what else, John. Uh, and so the result, the idea, right, basically is this, is that Jesus had a much higher view of John than John had for himself. Now, you might be going, hang on, is that not mean that he's got a low self-worth? No, no. 
It's how John sees himself is not affecting his self-worth. And you're going to see that in a minute. Look at what John says about himself. In talking to G- about Jesus, he is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now we don't maybe think too much of this because when we wear sandals or flip-flops or something that is on bare feet in the summer, you know, okay, you're maybe not going to go out of your way to, to touch the sandals. But in that time, it was absolutely degrading to look, uh, sorry, to touch somebody else's sandals. It was disgusting. You wouldn't even get a servant to do it. You'd get a, a Gentile dog to do it, literally. It was such a disgusting, depraved thing to expect somebody to do, to touch the sandals. And John is saying, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to touch his sandals, Jesus. I'm not worthy. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say that I am only worthy. He actually puts himself lower, lower, lower. So the lower he puts himself, the more influence and bold and confident he is. Completely opposite to our culture. Completely opposite. He was a man of humility. He had a powerful humility. Powerful. And this humility was what was breeding the bold, confident, influential, legacy-leaving change that he was bringing into his society at this time. He wasn't all about himself. He was all about Jesus. He was confident in how Jesus saw him but he put himself down. There's this real strange dichotomy. See, humility is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. Very, very important. Let me show you a quote from a a book from Timothy Keller. He's quoting C.S. Lewis, and this is where this idea comes from. If we were to meet a truly humble... This is C.S. Lewis in in Mere Christianity, but quoted within this book by Timothy Keller. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they are a nobody. Because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does this make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. That's humility. That's what John had. He didn't think of himself as anything. And yet Jesus saw, himself, saw John as greater than anybody. See, John had true humility. And our culture says, in order for you to achieve, you need to push yourself forward. Whereas the Bible says, in order to become greater, you need to become less. And your self-worth is not changed by that. In fact, your self-worth increases the less you go. It's countercultural. John is humble, and yet he's an influencer. He's humble, yet he's confident. He's humble, yet he is bold. He went toe-to-toe with Herod, accusing him of adultery that ultimately cost him his life. Didn't care. Boom, went straight at it. He was a radical. He was bold or humble. Yes, both. Courageous, with humility. Yes, absolutely. 
influential, innovative. John came baptizing. This was a completely innovative thing to do because b- baptism was, was really secured for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. And so they were baptized in order to clean them to be, so they could become a Jew. The idea of Jewish people being baptized was incredibly innovative. So the lower we are, the higher we see Jesus, the more innovative we become more confident we become because our confidence is based in Him, not on our ability to succeed. Because as I said right at the beginning, the more onus we put on ourselves, the more likely we're going to fail. The more likely it is that our self-worth will be destroyed if we mess up. Whereas if we put our attention on Jesus and we make it about Him, then really we cannot fail. And so we try things, we do things, we're bold, we say things, we go to places, we put our lives on the line sometimes, just like John. There are still Christians today who are going to parts of the world where they don't know whether they're going to come back. Where does that confidence come from? Where does that boldness come from? It does not come from them pushing themselves forward as all that. Because they've got a great Instagram account and we're self-empowered. It comes from a humility, a I am lower, he is everything. His view of me is more important than my view of me. And it breeds boldness. And if we can inspire that into our kids' lives, into our grandkids' lives, that their confidence, their boldness, their achievement in life is not based on them because you are setting them up for failure. You are setting them up for self-destruction. Because when life does not align with a way that you can do everything, they find out they can't, then they're actually going to feel bad about themselves, which results in guilt and shame. They're constantly trying to achieve. Whereas if you inspire the kids, those that you are mentoring, those that you are friends with, your brothers, your sisters, your classmates, that actually you put your confidence in Him, then you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. All things for Him. You can be legacy leaving. You can be confident. You can be bold. You can do all those things that our world values, but it's through Him. And because it's through Him, you can never fail because even if you end up losing your life, you still win. That's the difference between boldness that the world would say comes from being focused on me and boldness that comes from being focused on him because John was a radical, a radical, greater, Jesus said, than anybody else had lived. His radical message that no one deserved salvation. No one deserved to be saved. It's only by Jesus' sacrifice that through His love, that we can find salvation, that we can find freedom, that it's not what we do, it's not that performance, it's not what people say, it's not what we think about ourselves, it's about Him. It was a radical message. And as we submit ourselves to Him, then our confidence in ourselves increases in a humble way and it emerges into life. It was a radical message that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross and by dying, taking the sin and the shame and the, and the things that we all handle, for all those who believe it is applied to him on the cross and dies with him on the cross. It's a radical message. Because before that, Judaism was all about what you did, what you didn't do, where you went, what rules you were going to follow. That's how you got saved. That's how you found freedom. John's coming over, kicking over tables, going, nope, that's not where it's found. It's found in the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. Look at what he said about himself. If we can catch this, you will wake up tomorrow morning and the enemy's going to go, oh no, he's awake. 
she's awake. We're in trouble today. If we can catch this, look at what John said. This is how I know John didn't have low self-worth. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Who's the one calling in the wilderness? It's Jesus. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am the voice. See, he saw Jesus. He saw himself in relationship with Jesus. He saw himself as nothing compared to Jesus. His boldness and confidence increases because he's realizing that the one, the one has called him to be the voice. Because there's nothing like when somebody comes alongside you and says, look, not only do I think you can do this, I'm going to give you everything to do. Uh, to be able, I'm going to give you every ability. That your life is secure. That you have the full force of the divine behind you. Let's go do this. I'm the voice. I'm the voice. That's way better than being called Elijah. What's your name? I'm the voice. I'm just going before the one who's crying out, make way for the straight uh, for the Lord. Make way the straight the way of the Lord. I'm the voice. Self worth was strong. Confidence was strong. That's how he could go toe to toe with sin in his time. And this is where, if you've got your journal, you want to write this next statement down. He thinks he is everything and nothing at the same time. Because Jesus, who was everything, made himself nothing by dying on the cross. John thinks he is everything. I'm everything. I'm his voice. But I am not worthy to untie the sandals that he walks around in. He thought he was everything and nothing at the same time. He was a nobody telling people about somebody. That was his job. And his confidence skyrocketed because it wasn't based in him. It was based in Jesus. That is, a, a, is an equation for success. Remember Paul in the Philippian jail and you read um, Philippians and it's a, it's a book of rejoicing. And he says, that, you know, and, I, and I've, I've preached this many times before. He says, you know, if for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You let me live, I'm going to be a voice. You let me die, I win. What do you do with a person like that? How do you push them down? How do you get, how do you separate them? How do you quiet them off? How do you reduce? You can't because they're like, I win. Because I'm the voice. I'm the voice. So where does this connect with us? How do we become that confidence? How do we inspire? The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look. In the older versions, it's a better way of saying it. It says, behold. It's not a word we use very often, is it? You know, you're driving along. And you look, behold, children. You know, they'll be like, what? <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's a significant word. Behold, children. I should start saying that. Buckle up, kids. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. He's like, this, it's that guy. Look, he's the Lamb of God. He looked to something outside of himself and was empowered by it. 
behold, behold. He points to this better way. I am the voice. You know, if, if, if I could have a prayer answered for the church, and I pray for the church constantly, I pray over the lists of people in the church by name. I have prayed for you. If you've, if you've given in one of these cards, that's, by the way, a large impetus as to why we want them. I pray for you. And I pray for you, and one of the things that I pray is from Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, Paul was praying for the church, and he said, I pray that they would have a revelation of you, of Jesus. They would be given revelation of who Jesus was, and they would be intimately in knowledge of Jesus was. Because Jesus has a high view of us. We were created perfect. Before it all got broken by sin, we, we were created. And so when, when we become Christians, we go back to that way. And that's how Jesus sees us. And you see, John is indifferent towards himself, but Jesus is not indifferent towards you. He doesn't see himself as anything, John, but Jesus sees us as everything. Now, if that turns to pride then that's, that's the wrong way to go because pride results in, self, in judgment and self-righteousness and everything else. But if we could just see ourselves the way that God sees us, wow. You would echo what John says. I am the voice. There's no ego found here because ego results in arrogance. Ego actually makes you afraid to step forward. Yeah, I, I'll do it because you're afraid of what people might think of you. That's ego. That's pride. Ego keeps us thinking about ourselves constantly. We need a high view of ourselves. It's in alignment with the way Jesus sees ourselves. We've got to get this tension right. And this idea here is that John is excited about who it is that he's serving. And it results in this confidence. So how, how does this connect with us? We need to humble ourselves before the one who humbled himself for us. And that emerges, this humility. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was um, I was struggling a bit in my in my car because um, I actually was missing the days when you did this to get the window down. Again, another eighties and before kind of thing. Before you did this, because the problem with doing this is if the electrics go, your window doesn't go down, and that's what happened to me. The thing is, is I completely forgot about this when I was pulling up to the drive-through banking with a big white truck behind me with somebody who looked quite serious in it. And if those of you do it, you know that the gap between the machine and, and, and the window is, is really quite narrow. And so I'm driving up, and I've got the envelope ready, because Sarah always says, you know, pay it in or whatever. And so I come up. Oh, no. <laughs> because if you open your door, you've only got like, you, you, it's like, oh, forget it. So I carried on driving through. I, I, I couldn't even pretend that I paid something. And if this person was observant, they would have gone, what is he doing? Is he just like driving through drive throughs <laughs> Same day, this shows you how thick I am. Same day, I go to a Starbucks drive through Now now it gets really interesting because I'm like, oh, screw it. I, I, I'm just going to open my door just enough, give them my cash. And they're like, and then, oh, sorry, no, no, it was a machine. It was worse. They put the machine in. Like that, and then I put, and then they had to drop, like, oh, it was terrible. It was humiliating. It was humbling. 
And you know what? I think God does that for us sometimes just to allow us just to remember that he is in control and he has a great sense of humor. I'm pretty sure he's gathering angels around. Guys, guys, come on. This could be good. I broke his, I broke his windows. Watch. <laughs> See, humility emerges. John the Baptist's greatness was that he grasped the greatness of Jesus better than anyone else. And he humbled himself before it. So how do we inspire boldness and confidence and influence in our world? We humble ourselves before the one who is far greater, more ultimate, more beautiful than anything that can be found in this universe. The one who created, the one who breathed life into us. The one who believes in us, who sees us in a way that we struggle to see in ourselves. We humble ourselves before that on a daily basis. We open up our Bible and we pray And we thank God for who he has made us to be because of what Jesus did on the cross. We humble ourselves before it. And if you don't do that, the result is is that you are constantly trying to be bold and confident and secure in something that you're going to not find in yourself. And you become reliant on what other people say and think and do around you. and, And things start getting really complicated and difficult and it terminates on you and you implode. Whereas if we humble ourselves before the one who sees us in a way that we could, one day we will find out in eternity the way that God sees us with everything that he's given us. If we humble ourselves before that, our confidence increases and we do great things. Because what's really interesting about the passage that I quoted before in Matthew 11, John, uh, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom will be greater than John. Hang on, I thought you said that John was greater. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, but there's going to be people to come who are going to be even greater than John. And you know why? Because John didn't see the whole story. John only saw what Jesus did on the cross, the Lamb of God. That was significant. But we get to see what happened after Jesus died and him rising again and being filled with his spirit. So that's why Jesus can say, greater things will my people do. Because we get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we can go out, if we humble ourselves before Jesus, we're filled with this confidence and boldness. Remember the first Christians, they prayed, God, give us boldness to live this out in Acts chapter 2. They didn't pray for more stuff. They prayed that we would actually live out that which we already are. Give us boldness. They grasped the greatness of Jesus better than anyone else. Let's be a people, South Church, who grasp the greatness of the one that we call Lord. And we can actually say, behold the Lamb of God. That everything that we have, everything we've been given, everything that we do, we can continually point, it's because of Him, it's for Him, it's through Him. That yeah, I make money in my business so that I can make much of Him. So that I can give this away. And we're continually pointing away, deflecting away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus. That's why we're given what we're given. That's why... We live where we live. That's why we have the neighbors that we have. It's not so that we can ignore them. It's so that we can point, behold, the Lamb of God. We can be confident in that. For us to have that kind of boldness and confidence and take it into the world, that we could become the voice of the Okanagan. I thought, that's a bit cheesy. And I wrote it down. I put it on my notes. Voices in the Okanagan desert. I went, ooh, it's quite poetic. But no, it's actually right. A church of the voice. A church of his voice. A church of his love. A church of his hand. A church of his greatness. A church that is bold because he was bold. A church who is courageous because he is courageous. 
that we get from that, not from ourselves. And let's parents, let's train our kids. No, let's inspire our kids to make much of him. Let's inspire one another to make much of him. That's why we sing together. That's why we gather together on a Sunday. So we can be a confident voice in the desert. Literally. This scripture is for us in the wilderness. Amen? Let me pray for you. As you close your eyes, church family, I want to remind you, please just close your eyes with me just for a second, that we are in a war. And we have an enemy. And his job description is really clear. And he's very good at it. It says in John 10, 10, that Jesus came to bring life and life more abundantly. But we have a liar. We have an enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And he will do it in any possible way that he can. He will seek to destroy confidence. He will seek to destroy boldness, self-worth, families, marriages, relationships. He will use the smallest thing to bring the largest wedge of disunity and destruction into the church. We're at war. But as I preached a few weeks ago, the weapons of our welfare are not physical. It's truth. It's spirit. It's faith. It's righteousness. It's confidence in Jesus. And the way that we safeguard ourselves by humbling ourselves before the one who humbled himself. Saying more of you, Jesus, and less of me. And we can wage war in that confidence, in that boldness. And even when things happen around us that cause us confusion and challenge and despair, let's be confident that Jesus knows, as you've already heard, He sees, he knows, and his plan will not be thwarted. He promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we we humble ourselves now with our heads bowed. And Lord, I know there are some in the room that have heavy hearts just because of what life has brought. There are some in the room, Lord, who need more confidence and boldness and higher self-worth. Lord, I pray that you would just inject that into their lives today. That, Lord, as they gaze upon you, as they fix their attention upon you, that Jesus, light of the world, that, Lord, you would bring them light Father, I pray that we would be a community, a church family of the humble, and yet bold. Lord, I pray that you would constantly remind us of your sovereignty and your providence, that you are in control.
Help us, Lord, to inspire those people around us that you have given us to speak into their lives. Lord, I pray that they would see your light in our lives. And Lord, I thank you that even though we're at war, you are the supreme commander. And we just chase after you. We're your voice. Sarah's going to lead us in a song and and here's what I want to encourage you to do as we sing. Maybe it means for you, you lift up hands as you humble yourself before the king. Maybe you want to kneel down and humble yourself before the king. However you choose to do it, let's pray as we sing and declare the truth over our lives. Hallelujah.